Today on Vulnerable, I'm going to have a solo episode dedicated to my book review of Jeanette McCurdy's I'm Glad My Mom Died. It is a seriously impactful book that I was so happy to get through because it was extremely triggering. It took me weeks to listen to the audiobook version. I also purchased the book in hopes of being able to sit down and read it, but since I have two toddlers, it is not my natural state to read something like that book before I go to sleep, um, and I wanted to make sure I got through it. So, Jeanette McCurdy is an actress, um, or former actress, I guess, question mark, who starred on multiple TV shows that were created by Dan Schneider um, for Nickelodeon, and she's extremely talented, uh, and now she is a prolific writer. This is her first book, which I hope will be the first of many, uh, and I have been... I was at at odds with even trying to listen or read the book. I didn't want to, I pushed it off. Let's just say that because, you know, I wanted Jeanette to come on the podcast um, and she's been super duper busy. And I've been in touch with Jill Fritzo's PR team. And I am obviously more than happy to bend over backwards to have her as a guest like any time. After listening to her book slash, I guess, reading, um, I just want her to be happy. Like I truly have had a come to Jesus with who Jeanette is and whatever Jeanette needs, Jeanette should get. <laughs> so quite frankly, this is my love letter to Jeanette. It's a means of me using my platform to show my support uh, of what she did for the community of child performers uh, who are systemically abused, violated, and um, have absolutely no, uh, no closure in their lives other than the ones that they bring themselves through years and years of therapy. It's funny, um, the last solo episode I did that I can remember is uh, the one that I had about Aaron Carter. And um, I'm feeling that same level of anxiety right now. I'm feeling really shaky. Uh, I feel alone. A lot of times with vulnerable, I have the privilege of putting someone else on the hot seat. And there's something about her raw candor and her retelling of her life that has awakened something in me that I didn't know even existed. Obviously, you know, I'm very vocal about, um, you know, advocacy and trying to figure out a way to change the realities for high-performing children, not necessarily just kids that are, you know, working for Disney, Nickelodeon, whatever. I think that it's children that are in new media and um, that are not represented and exploited by some of their parents. Um, and I think that it extends over to high-performing kids who eventually are, you know, athletes. That's probably even more complex. It's not my area of expertise, but I'm an advocate for children on the whole for their mental health. And a book like this is a, I mean, it deserves the praise. And if you haven't taken a listen to it, I'm going to run down the, the, the breakthrough of it, but by no means 
Is this a means of trying to like exploit the value of the book? It is not a fair and full comprehensive video about the book. I know that there's a lot of people who did book reviews on this, but I feel like I should do it. I feel very drawn to making this podcast. So here we go. So Jeanette starts off talking about her childhood. I feel like the book is broken up into three parts, her childhood, her iCarly days, and then her post iCarly days, which really truly centers around her eating disorder and her struggle with uh, recovering from that. And it brings us up to the present. Her childhood, the way that she recounts it is terrifying. Uh, and because I was triggered by it, it was even more terrifying, I think, and hard to get through. I flew through, I think, the parts of which she was in iCarly and uh, some of the post stuff. But uh, the childhood stuff really hit me. I'm not sure if everyone felt like that. Uh, but it was very extremely eerie to hear about the things that her mom put her through. Um, because what she, what she was able to do was write as a child, but also write with an ironic distance of somebody who, who's had years of therapy to still be breathing and walking this earth. She talks a lot about, you know, the way she grew up. Her mom was a hoarder. Uh, you know, and uh, they didn't really have a very good quality of life in their home. You know, she uh, showered her with her brothers up until she was like, you know, 12, 13. Um, and her brother was like 16. Uh, she, you know, gave her exams al along her body and her privates. And like, it was extremely hard to hear as a mom and also as somebody who grew up with a stage parent. You can't help but as a child actor who's grown up and figured their shit out a bit, um, but like compare like stage parent craziness, right? So like through the first part of this book, it was very hard for me not to be like, oh, I can relate to that or like trauma bonding with the narrator and in some parts, I was like shocked that I could bond and then also like, oh, no, 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 wait, what does that mean about me? But in other ways, I was so fucking mad that the infrastructure to catch these children who are at risk essentially of being exploited just does not exist. And I am... I, I think you all know by now that I intend to use <laughs> lots of means to like figure this out for people so that we can, you know, help people in the future. So let's see. She, uh, you know, gets into, you know, an acting class after becoming a uh, background actor and her mom is struggling with cancer uh, and treatments and always trying to figure that out. And she feels very guilty. And what I can truly relate to with Jeanette on is how much she loved her mom's attention, how much she wanted her mom to just be her best friend and how the sun rises and set with her mom. And God, did that speak volumes to me. And I know it speaks volumes to other friends of mine whose moms were very close with them, seemingly so, um, 
but it's never really quite that clean when you're a stage parent because you don't realize this, but the industry, because it lacks the infrastructure for putting children's mental health first or at the forefront, is that the industry grooms parents into allowing for moments of like like bad moments, like there's opportunities for things to happen. So they don't realize it, but they start to step away. They feel more comfortable. They want to be liked. They want to be, you know, they want their kid to work if this is what they think their kid's dream is. And that's the good version of a parent. The bad version of a parent is Jeanette McCurdy's mom. She's one of the worst. She's one of them for sure. So basically... Everything is seemingly okay in the beginning, right? She's too young to really know any better. Her mom just wants to baby her all the time. She loves her mom's attention. She gets into an acting class. She starts working more normally. But she's learning how to process her acting chops, you know, as most kids do. Like if you could cry on cue, oh man, you're a booker. And one of the scariest things she says in the book is the reason I know how to cry on cue is because I know I see it from what my mom does. Because her mom was a complete narcissist, as she said in interviews, as I've heard her say, and she would turn it on in order to manipulate her father and all of the, all of the people. And the things that she did about her cancer treatments where she would basically make them stage rehearse her, her funeral it was emotional abuse from from all all around, right? So Jeanette as a baby, baby Jeanette, would be able to cry on cue, and she was known for that. But then shortly after, when she couldn't cry on cue because she was just like tapped out or, you know, she couldn't do that time and time again, when she booked a job, it was like a mark against her. And, you know, I think from the jump, what we learn about Jeanette is that her bodily agency was continually being compromised. And she was conditioned, as she says very much later in the book, to just accept like a dissociative lifestyle. Uh, so much of her is numbed out from the jump that it's amazing that she, like I said, it's amazing that she's still with us. So Jeanette... Um, continues to succeed because she's so talented and resilient. And truly, I think she just wants the love and acceptance of her mom. You know, um, she seems to have really supportive grandparents. Um, and uh, there's things that are around her that could be good, right? Like, she definitely loves her, her father. But she doesn't really connect with him on like a like a, the level that she connects with her mom on. And now speaking from experience, like a part of having a stage parent, displacement is the norm. You're either displaced from one of your parents or your parents and your siblings. And it destroys your family. And again, there's no infrastructure to support the siblings as well as the father that like basically loses time and misses that entire lifespan of being a parent to that child. And generally it is the father, but there are stage fathers and some of them are way more exploited than their stage moms. So, um, God, it feels really weird <laughs> to, 
to be truly telling you guys and unpacking this book because I feel like for the first time, this is me being vulnerable on this podcast. And I don't even know if you guys are really going to like care, but I care. And I care about, you know, the shape of this podcast as being some sort of an authentic, um, like, I don't know, landing spot for folks to kind of engage with. So this is it. So be kind, please, in comments, because this is, this is hard to get through. Um, so let's see. Um, I'm not going to be super detailed about, you know, the, the, the everything, because I don't want to ruin it for you. Uh, but I just want to give you my insights because chances are, if you're tuning into this, some of you have probably already listened or, or, or read this book because it's so popular as it should be. So she is extremely nervous about growing into her body when she realizes that she has a boob because for young girls, boobs come in on different sides sometimes. And so she goes to her mom and her mom begins to coach her on how to have an eating disorder. She teaches her how to have, uh, you know, a calorie counting system. And she, she recounts this with such ease that you don't even process it until you see the effects that this has on Jeanette 100, 200 pages later or something. And the fact that it spirals out of control for her in such ways, it's, it's, it makes you almost like complicit in her journey, which is what makes her a masterful writer. So she's, you know, learning how to calorie count and, you know, she feels so close to her mom because of this. It's their secret. When she goes to the pediatrician, they're like, I think she has an eating disorder. And her mom's like, no, she doesn't. She's great. She's fine. And she even mentions anorexia, the pediatrician. And that's the first time that Jeanette even hears about this, but she's so young. I think she's 12. She doesn't even realize it. But she knew. She knew, which comes up later. So uh, she continues to stay very, very small, which allows her to play younger parts for longer, which gives you a competitive edge, or so her mom likes her to believe. You know, her, again, her home life uh, is very interesting in that her father and her mother are very contentious, or at least her mother is contentious to her father, and he's extremely beta, passive, so to speak. He just kind of lets her run all over him. Uh, and she's, you know, Mormon or LDS, and she's she actually has really kind of lighthearted memories of what the church means to her, which would make one think that it was a place for her to actually kind of feel normal for a period of time until I think she goes so far into the dark part of her life that she's like, I just don't believe in this. This is ridiculous. She starts to develop some OCD patterns while she's in church. She um, thinks it's the Holy Spirit talking to her. Uh, so magical thinking is really interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a recurrent theme in, if I were to write a memoir, it's something that I think I would definitely unpack. As young actors, you are meant to think that you are many different people, that it's not just play. You have to be like putting yourself in all of these different shoes of different names and characters and experiences that it splits your identity. 
before your identity is even uh, comprehended. So you're, you have these split identities. Amongst that, you have a split identity as, okay, now I'm just a working young adult, even though I'm a child, in an adult environment. And then also your identity at home when you're a sibling has to be very different because the pecking order of that might change if you start making money. Um, and then you become like the most favored child. And like, it's, it's again, that displacement. It's just not, not nuclear. Um, and when you start to have sort of a split identity, uh, you start to have magical thinking. I think that it creeps in, especially if religion is a part of your family culture. So for me, I had a, a Catholic upbringing and I was praying to God a lot and, and thinking that I could have this relationship with God and, and that he would talk to me, right? But there is a higher power that exists in all of us. I truly believe that, which has informed my sobriety. But when we're talking about what Jeanette was dealing with, it was informing her OCD because it was the wrong cocktail or the right cocktail to create a perfectionist child with eating disorders and OCD tendencies. So, you know, she goes through a lot of, you know, detail about her relationship to Mormonism and how her career became more important to her mother. And there was times when she told her mom, I don't want to do this. And the mom was just like, crying and manipulating her and turning it on. This was our time. This was our moment. And she's just like, I just love my mom so much. There's nothing I can do. She's extremely detailed about her mom's health and, um, and just how all that goes on for her. It's, it's a through line into almost like a vice around her spirit so that she can't break away at any, at any point in time. She's mentioned in, you know, some of her passages that she's read online, you know, she was in a booster seat. I think she was still like 14 or something like that. And she's so tiny. Now, a booster seat, if you guys don't know what it is because you don't have kids or cousins or nieces or nephews, is a seat that literally just props you up. Uh, it's, it's like you go from a car seat and then from a car seat, you get this like mini seat that allows you to be able to wear a seatbelt properly so that you don't get into a car accident and fly through the window. So she's in a in in a in a almost like an infant's seat because I think she's like seventy six pounds or something crazy, right? And she's you know fourteen, and uh, you know she's starting to work more frequently and she's starting to become more speaking roles on some Frankie Muniz thing, and um, her mom is very much controlling of her and all the things that she says and does, but she's still growing up. Like, as much as she doesn't want to, and she's already very deep into her anorexia, I guess, with her mom uh, supporting that, she's still growing up. There's nothing that she can do. You know, she ends up getting her period, and then her mom starts to teach her even more about that. Like, that's something that she has to, like, just figure out how not to have it anymore. Um, it's terrifying. It's terrifying that people like this exist. And how do CPS, how does CPS get called, uh, you know, to like help someone like this? Or is there an informant that could possibly help a child out on set when they see that these things are happening to them? 
this is a, a call to action. I mean, like, truly, this is a horrible reality. And, you know, we've seen Drew Barrymore come out <clears throat> with her recounting of how she was addicted to pills and horrible things at a very young age. And it's all fun and games. Everyone likes to post about, oh, this is just horrible, horrible, horrible. But you're the first to click on the link that says, where are they now? And there's only so many times that like people like Allison Stoner or even Jeanette or even myself can 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 be like, okay, what are we going to do uh, before we don't really need the public's weigh in on this? We've got to just get together and we've got to like figure out how to save kids, I guess, and and help them. Um, from this kind of behavior. There is no easy fix to when you're talking about a parent that's like this abusive to their child. Uh, there's just, I, I'm, I'm really at a, at a, it's what's making me very upset when I'm recounting the story. But let me move on, okay? Let me just try to move on. So she gets to the opportunity to be at iCarly. Uh, iCarly is what she's primarily known for. And for a while, I think she's like cool with it. She really is like loves Miranda Cosgrove, which I couldn't be happier to find out that Miranda Cosgrove and her were friends. And even though they lost touch through the years, Miranda seemingly is like super supportive and sweet girl. There's something about Miranda that when I see her posts, she just has the most beautiful smile and she just has a lovely spirit. And who knows what Miranda's backstory was, but like, gosh, I hope she's doing okay. Um, you know, Nickelodeon was a very different network than Disney. I want to like be very clear about that. I had no idea just how different it was until I listened to this and then also kind of listened to the the accounts from like people like uh, Alexa Nicholas and just other people, right? Like I've gotten sort of a, a concept of what it was like over there. And it was a little wild and chaotic. And it seems like the executives didn't really know how to control their sets because it seems like they let their creators, who will remain nameless, uh, be uh, a little uh, corrupt, if you want to call it that. I think that if you're going to have millions of dollars pumped through a person and you're going to say, here's all this money, don't fuck it up, then your employees should be a part of that, right? So if your employees happen to be children, then, I mean, there's got to be checks and balances, right? That creator's got to create an environment that's safe. Otherwise, they're a huge liability to production. And if you think that they're not a liability now, give it 10 to 15 years when all those child actors grow up, get therapy, and then want to come out against you. Just give it time. It's, I'm not even threatening you. I'm just saying that this is what will happen time and time again if you don't hold yourself accountable as a studio executive and have checks and balances on your sets. So she goes on to talk about an, an unnamed creator and essentially saying that, you know, this person did lots of, you know, wrong things. Once she came of age, they put their hands on her and fed her alcohol, which, by the way, I'm pretty sure that's like against the law. So I don't know how that's not being investigated. But, um, you know, she lived in a very small-minded world where it was like work, eating disorder. And then she started to have sort of like a country, like singing career. 
And that was the first time that she was able to break away from her mom because her mom's cancer came back and, you know, she was finally making money and she was of an age where, you know, she wanted to branch out and, you know, kiss a boy or something like that. And so she experiences a lot of firsts because her mom isn't able to be over her shoulder when she goes on tour to perform her country Western music. Um, she starts to eat and binge eat and she gains a lot of weight or so she thinks. And she's actually enjoying food for the first time, but then she also feels extremely guilty and deep, deep shame for herself uh, by gaining any of this weight. And it's unclear as to what Jeanette's like joy in performing is. I find this interesting because at some point or another, when you're a child performing and you're growing up, you become so conditioned to the highs and the lows. Again, it goes back to that dissociative thing where you don't feel the highs anymore and you don't feel the lows as low. And that's the only way for you to survive is if you just keep going. But what happens is, is that also takes the joy out of the performance and your love of the arts, which is why when people ask me about my kids and if I would put them in the industry, firstly, I say there's no infrastructure to, to really support their mental health, right? And secondly, uh, I want them to love the arts. That is something that I wish I could go back and fall in love with again. I don't sing anymore. Um, I barely act. Uh, it's not because I don't love it or that I don't have a, a great skill set for it that I've dedicated decades to. It's that I have a very complex relationship to my own talents. And it seems that Jeanette can definitely relate to that um, because I'm not hearing her recount like, you know, when I was on stage, I felt so alive and like, I you know, that was not in there. Um, there's a bleakness that kind of starts to like follow through her story. Again, I, I'm sure there's only so much that she can cover and she wrote it so well. I'm sure she conditioned this book through her one woman show that she had going on in California for a while. And I mean, there is no fat in this book. This is a expertly executed book. So yeah, I mean, she's she's on the road to having her own show, right? She was told by the creator that she was going to have her own show and that she's got to just listen to everything that they say. And the mom is, of course, on board with that, right? Like, because that's all she ever wanted for herself. And so her mom isn't even kind of like concerned about her her daughter's body, obviously, her agency, like anything of that. She would probably absolutely have told her daughter to do whatever it takes, right? Although that conversation never is spoken about in the book. Um, she eventually does get her own show, but it's a spinoff, and she shares the stage with Ariana Grande. And she has pretty mixed feelings about Ariana. I think we've all had successful co-stars, myself included, that we can kind of look to and be like, oh, that was their trajectory and fuck them. But, you know, there's a part of you that's still like, I do want to support them. Like, I don't want to feel jaded about them. I don't want to look back in anger because that had nothing to do with me. Their life had nothing to do with my life, right? And so I, I definitely relate to her on that. That happens to a lot of child actors who know a friend who managed to become a big star. And they have to live with that 
you know, with that shame, you know, that, oh, you know, I, I just didn't, I just didn't find my way. And what does that mean for me? Right. So she's living with that, that reality that she was meant to have her own show, but now she's sharing it. And as she's cycling out of it, I think, you know, her eating disorder, her first real relationship with a guy is just awful. He's a much older guy, um, super, super immature person, it seems like at the time. Um, and she's really carrying that relationship financially. You know, a lot of times with child actors, you know, we're giving our money to our parents. Her mom mentions stuff like that when she finds out about their relationship because she was lying to her the whole time. And she's like, I need a new fridge, but you're this, this, and this, and you're a slut, and you're all these horrible names, right? Just manic, crazy control that her mom was trying to have over her when she realized that she was living a secret life. Um, so Jeanette's like Carly days are kind of the fastest paced portion of this book. And I think it starts to kind of wind down. And when I say wind down, I mean slow down because things start to get very, very dark in the days after iCarly. You know, she's trying to find her way through Hollywood and, um, she's not sure what she wants to do. Um, you know, she's ending up getting some Netflix show and she's really not like seemingly happy about that. And she apologizes, by the way, for, you know, I know that like my privileged life of starring in shows and whatnot, it seems like, like, how could I possibly complain about that? But for her, those were her problems. And when we think about what a unique set of problems are for her, you still feel bad. It's not like, oh, look at this whiny white girl, right? So at that point, I think she introduces that almost apologetically um, when, honestly, I don't think she needs to. Um, so, all right. So she's really become uh, really bad with her eating disorder. She starts drinking a lot of alcohol. Um, you know, she's uh, watching her mom pretty much go into hospice care, in and out of hospice care. Her mom ends up dying. And she tried to whisper to her mom when she's in a coma, like, mom, I'm at my goal weight. I'm like 100 pounds or something like that. And she thought that would literally wake her up from a coma. And that goes back to that magical thinking. And Jeanette expertly, like, brings up these things that have happened that she says, and it just shocks you, right, to the bone. But this is her reality. Let's see. There was one particular point in the book that I was very happy to be listening to the audiobook version. There was something in her tone that completely broke. I want to say that it was around 71, chapter 71. And she's talking about how Again, when she knew that her mom was not a good person for her or an advocate or even her best friend and that, that little 11-year-old girl or something, um, and I say or something, guys, because I, I'm not doing direct quotes, so please don't like be harsh on me. Uh, she's like, you know, I knew she wasn't good for me because uh, of that pediatrician appointment. And she remembers it clear as day. Is that's the first moment, right? That was the first red flag. 
And she breaks. And it was very hard to listen to. Because you could tell that as darkly humoristic as she was, like as funny and dark of a person as she's been able to become as a means of coping. That's kind of her brand, I think. You saw her truly in that moment and you listened to her connecting to her words that she was able to write and then have celebrated. And it's a, it's a bittersweet moment for you as a listener and you truly do feel complicit in her, in her journey at that point. You feel like you are part of it at that point. History is being made and you are part of that. So not to mention like a lot of you guys have grown up with her, you know, like a lot of folks have, have, have watched her. I remember seeing her little cute face because she came after me and thinking, oh, that's a cute girl. She's definitely like the best friend type, but like, look at her go, right? Like that was my mentality of it. But um, to find out all this, all this, this stuff, I don't want to call it tea because it really is not tea. It's, it's so much more than that. Her, her eating disorder really becomes just chaos for her life for years and years and years. She's, you know, losing teeth. Um, she's living a lifestyle that is very dark that, by the way, when alcohol is involved, I have found that it's just the worst. It is, I'm not saying it's the devil, <laughs> but it's, it's the closest thing to it. I would say when you have an addictive personality, um, because it numbs you and it quiets your higher power, your relationship to your higher power. And I don't care what you call your higher power, God, or um, whoever it is. I really don't. I really don't have a dog in that race. Uh, but a higher power is something that you know you have because it makes you do good and it makes you get up in the morning and put your feet on the ground, and that's what is really important for all of us to be in touch with. And Jeanette was so far away from her higher power that. So many times in this book, she's talking about her higher power as being her bulimia. And that is uh, terrifying. I have two daughters. And recently, there's been a lot of, um, you know, studies that have been done about young girls in our culture right now as hitting new highs in, of, of mental health and depression and problems. And of course, we've always known that body image was an issue. And I've always celebrated, you know, this, the inclusiveness of body positivity. I've really celebrated it. I have never struggled with an eating disorder. I was always very thin and I always felt guilty about that. I, I struggled with other things about my teeth and my boobs and other stuff. But like the, the weight thing was never a problem for me. And also I was not well nourished. Like I didn't feed myself well, but it was not an active thing that I decided to do. I, again, I'm not active in therapy like Jeanette has been. Um, reading this book has almost made me truly want to go back to therapy. It's hard because I'm like, what do I do after reading this book? Do I go try to make legislation happen or do I work on myself um, and uh, pull all of the pieces that were triggered by this book like out and try to like wrestle with those? 
when I have kids that I have to take care of, um, and I can't, I can't, I can't do that. I can't just like rip myself apart. I need to be strong for my kids. Or do I, you know, I, it, there's just so many options of, of what this book makes me want to do. And so I'm using vulnerable as a means of communicating that this book is essentially a case study that will be put into a dossier of documents that will be important to change. This was a brave act. And look, I don't know if Jeanette is truly trying to advocate for change, but it seems like she wouldn't want this to happen to anyone else. She's not a mean-spirited person at all. Like She seems like she really cares about the world around her. And uh, I can only hope that this book has brought some peace to her and not brought up more stuff. I'm sure it was not easy when this book came out. Um, and I was thinking of her a lot, even though I've, I think I've never met her. I think we may have seen each other in passing, but I don't think we've ever met her. And it's really funny because I can't really remember ever meeting her, but I feel like I know her. So go ahead and pick up this book or buy it twice like I did <laughs> on audiobook and the actual physical copy. I'm hoping that someday Jeanette will sign my book and understand that like I'm one of her biggest supporters. Uh, thank you guys so much for you know listening to this. This is not a typical episode. Um, and thanks for walking through all this stuff with me. Um, and thank you for your support of me and also support for Jeanette and support for change. And if you're interested, I actually just went live with the uh, Coalition for Child Performers dot com uh, where I have a I've, I've programmed it myself so it's literally just a landing page where you can sign up and so if you, people keep asking me like what can I do well if you go to www.coalitionforchildperformers.com you can type your email in and the folks that I talk to every month Allison Stoner is one of them and I've got intimacy coordinators who are on there Mara Wilson is a part of that under the desk news is a part of that now V. And I think we're working towards something. And as much as you care, uh, there's only so much you can do unless you're truly trained to help. It's kind of like when you see like a tornado happen or, you know, they're like, we need blood. We don't need people showing up and asking for support. Like they're really just going to be more of a problem. Like that's kind of where we're at with this crisis. It's like if you have a special set of skills, like sometimes I'll have people like, I have my PhD in, in, in child something, or like if you're in child labor law, like we could really use people like that. Or if you just want to be a voice to amplify things, you can go to the website, type in your email, and I will personally be able to keep like a long list of whoever's interested in being a part of this movement. So thank you. And um, thank you for listening to this episode of Vulnerable. Thanks so much for checking out this episode of the Vulnerable Podcast. For clips of this episode, go ahead and check out the Podco YouTube channel. Links in the description.